At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a culture filled with promises for a better life, deeper satisfaction, and greater purpose, but how do we know which is right? We invite you to join us for Smoke and Mirrors, deciphering truth in a world of truths, where we'll look to scripture to expose the illusions of our culture, and together, hold fast to a better answer, God's. All right, well, let's continue to worship the Lord, opening his word together. And we're in a new sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, And we almost could say this is uh, the same sermon series from earlier this stuff. Earlier this summer, um, we could have just called this entire summer series Crazy Stuff in the Old Testament because the first half of the summer, we studied the book of Lamentations, which is one of those books that you read and you think, really? Is this really in the Bible? If I read this anywhere else, I would think, nah, like this is somebody who's just kind of strung out and trying to pray. Um, Surely this isn't in Scripture itself, Um, but it is. Uh, The book of Lamentations is this reflection on the writer's severe circumstances and his struggle with God, his struggle with faith. Um, And so that's what we did the first half of the summer. This next half of the summer, we're looking at an equally, if not even more disturbing book of the Bible. One that again, if you read anywhere else but in scripture itself, you'd think there's no way this is scripture. This is some like kind of crazy minded on the street corner philosopher just kind of talking crazy, Um, but that's a little bit of what the book of Ecclesiastes is is like. Um, We don't know for sure who wrote it. Um, Our best guess is Solomon. He doesn't identify himself, but as we'll read, he does call himself a son of David, and he does refer to himself as a king in Israel, and Solomon was both of those things. Solomon was also known for his wisdom, and the book of Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. Um, But a lot of what he's doing in this book, especially the first two chapters, which is what we're going to be focusing on the next several weeks, a lot of what he's doing in this book is he almost steps into the secular mindset. He almost puts on a secular worldview and kind of deconstructs it. He kind of takes the secular outlook on life and plays it out to its natural conclusion. And he's going to say here from the very start, it is empty. It is vain, life under the sun. Um, So it's a really powerful book. And I almost want to say, if I could make every citizen in our country read one book of the Bible, Ecclesiastes would be up there. Um, Because that's where we're at, that's where we're headed, secularism. But I still kind of go, got to go with the Gospel of John. If I could make everybody read one book, I would have to say the Gospel of John just because of Jesus. But Ecclesiastes would be number two. Um, I would have to think about it. Because this is a really powerful, powerful book that doesn't come at the reader, but kind of sits beside the reader and looks at life from the secularist point of view and deconstructs it. So let's jump into this. Uh, The book of Ecclesiastes is pretty easy to find. So if you crack open the Bible right in the middle, you'll probably hit Psalms or Proverbs. And the order of the books is Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. So pretty easy to find. If you see Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you've gone too far, come back to the left. You'll hit Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. 
the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done again. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. And there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So growing up, my family and I lived on the Florida coast, and we got to spend a lot of time on the beach, swimming, boogie boarding, playing in the sand, finding seashells. And I don't know why I have held on to this memory, but it sticks out to me of my time there as a young boy. But I recall early on trying to hold on to water. You know, cupping it in my hand and trying to hold on to it. Maybe it was when I was working on a sandcastle and I needed a little bit of water for it or something. I don't know. But like you do, I'd cup it in my hands, and for a moment it would stay there, pooled in the palm of my hand and my fingers shimmering in the Florida sunlight, but only for a moment. As my young mind was learning, water had this natural tendency to seep through the cracks between my fingers and escape my grasp. And trying to hold on to it was an exercise in vanity. I could hold it, but to try to continue holding on to it was all in vain. Well, my youthful water-clutching efforts are not unlike all of life, according to the writer of Ecclesiastes. So listen again to what he says there in verse 2. He says, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So this word vanity is a key word within the book of Ecclesiastes. It's used 38 times within this relatively short book, only 12 chapters total, and it's used 38 times. So that's an important sign for how significant this word is, how often it's used in the book. And the word translated here as vanity, it's the Hebrew word hevel. This word carries the idea of mere breath or a vapor or a mist. Very much like James chapter 4, verse 14, when James famously says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James says your life 
comes and goes like the morning mist. It fades away before you finish your second cup of coffee. Well, the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying the same thing. Life is a mere breath. It comes and goes and you barely notice it. Trying to hold on to it is an exercise in futility. It seeps through your fingers despite your best efforts to hang on. And so he continues in verse 3, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then he asks, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So this is another key word in the book of Ecclesiastes, gain. It's used 10 times throughout the book. And so he asks, all this toil, all this work, all this effort that man expends trying to find true gain, trying to find true satisfaction and fulfillment, after all that toil, what does man gain by it? The implied answer is nothing. So all that effort at maximizing profit and building wealth, did it ever ultimately satisfy? Nah, you always want a little more, plus you end up just leaving it to your kids when you die. And all those experiences of physical intimacy with your lover or lovers, did it ever really finally do it for you? Nah, you wake up the next day and still have that same longing all over again. And all that power and influence in the world, does it ever really fill the hole in your soul? No, the fire of ambition is never quenched, and then in the end, you retire or die and give up your power to somebody else. Money, sex, power. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Nothing. All is vanity, no gain, like little goofball CT trying to hold on to water. The gain we experience in this life, whether money, sex, power, possessions, fame, it's all fleeting. It's all short-lived. The pleasure it provides slips through your fingers, and you can't hang on to it. So this is going to be a constant theme throughout especially the first two chapters of the book that we're looking at. Life is vain, and true, lasting gain cannot be experienced under the sun. There's got to be something more. There's got to be something more than just this life, or life is ultimately meaningless. And this opening section, verses 4 through 11, the author is going to reflect on the repetitive nature of the world and how it points to the vanity of life. So the author has made the assertion that all is vain and there's no true gain under the sun. And now he's trying to bolster that argument by pointing to the repetitive nature of the world. So he starts off in verse four. He says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So the idea seems to be that one generation cycles through and another generation cycles out over and over like this while the earth remains steadfast. One generation begins its existence, another generation ends its existence, but the earth continues to exist. So he's contrasting these two things. Human life fleeting, 
Human life, short-lived. But the earth, by contrast, remains forever. So you think about all that's occurred across the generations on the eastern side of the United States over the last 250 years. And contrast that with the Appalachian Mountains that also exist on the eastern side of the U.S. So what's happened here in the last 250 years? So our country was birthed, 1776. The Revolutionary War was fought. Our Congress was formed. The first presidents were elected. The White House was burned during the War of 1812. The Industrial Revolution began. Abolitionists fought for slaves' freedom. Eventually a whole war was fought because of this conflict, the Civil War. Finally, the century turned. We experienced the Roaring Twenties and the Great Depression and two world wars and then a Cold War and then the Summer of Love in 1969 and Woodstock and then Nixon and Watergate and Disco and then the Reagan era, then the internet boom, then Y2K, then 9-11, then Bush, Obama, Trump, COVID. All those generational occurrences have come and gone. All those people have come and gone over the last 250 years. And you know what those mountains were doing 250 years ago before this whole thing started? The same thing they're doing today. A generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. The unchanging permanence of those mountains points to the fact that our life is a vapor. 50 generations from now, we will be dust. But our descendants in the year 4000 AD, they'll still be hiking the Appalachian Trail. Just like our ancestors 1000 years ago were enjoying those mountains in the same way. Life is a mere breath and it's over. So what kind of gain can you truly experience in such an incredibly brief period of time. Next, he continues in verse five. He says, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. So here's another instance of the repetition within the natural world. The sun rises, the sun goes down over and over again. And so there will eventually be for each one of us Two sunrises between which our lives will end. And you know what's going to happen after that? The sun is going to rise once more. Though we each count our lives as precious, the sun is not going to take a day off in remembrance of you. It's just going to keep doing its thing. So the unceasing, seemingly infinite nature of the sun cycle teaches us that we are finite. The sun rises and falls. The sun does not stop. It doesn't break for a second. But our lives, they do stop. Our lives are finite. So what kind of real gain can we achieve when our lives are going to be churned up in the ceaseless cycle of time? What could possibly make our finite lives count in the seemingly infinite nature of time? It's like building a snowman in winter and thinking that you can preserve its frame through summer. No chance. 
The cycle of the season is going to obliterate that thing by April at best, unless you live in Michigan and, you know, build a snowman Memorial Day. But eventually, and so it is for the earthly gain we accumulate under the sun. It's like trying to hang on to a snowball in July. The cycle of time eats it up, and it's all in vain. Verse four, the earth remains forever. Verse five, the sun rises and falls. Then in verse six, he's gonna point to the wind. And in verse seven, he's gonna point to the waters and these different repetitive cycles they have. So he says, starting in verse six, the wind blows to the south and it goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea's not filled to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. So at this point, he's almost likening creation to a machine. This machine that grinds on and on in this monotonous, nonstop performance. The winds blow and they come back again. The waters flow and there they flow again. Blow and blow as they do, the winds never arrive anywhere. They just keep going. And flow and flow as they do, the waters never fill up anything. They just keep flowing. So he seems to now be saying this is a reflection of human life. Because look at what he says there next in verse 8. He says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. These Weary winds blow and never arrive. These weary waters flow and never fill up. And so it is with the eyes and ears of man. Our eyes are never ultimately satisfied with what they see, and our ears are never fully satisfied with what they hear. The ceaseless, tireless, unsatisfying, unsatisfied nature of the winds and the waters point to the ceaseless, tireless, unsatisfied nature of our souls. So think about the most glorious, awesome thing you've ever seen or heard. So for me, I think back to the 1997 Iron Bowl. I was 12 years old, Auburn versus Alabama, football game, if you don't know. 90,000 of us packed out Jordan-Hare Stadium, Jarrett Holmes, kicked a game-winning, game-ending field goal, and everyone in that stadium collectively jumped out of our skin with excitement. Glory, hallelujah, we beat Bama, 1815. Or I think about a few years later, in the Birmingham Jefferson Civic Center, I beheld, I heard live in concert, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, the glory and the power of that face-melting show was awesome gripped by the boss ever since. (laughs) Or I think of the last seven years, getting to witness three of our children being born, being right there beside my wife as they came out. It is nuts. It is awesome. (laughs) Now, I know you're thinking, okay, CT, football game, rock concert, seeing your children born, one of these things matters more than the other, you know? My point is, all these things for me were wonders my eyes beheld. All these things for me were glories 
that my ears heard. And you have your own stories. And you have your own experiences. But all things are full of weariness. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. The ear is not filled with hearing. Just like the winds never arrive at a satisfying destination, just like the rivers never fill the depths of the ocean, so our hearts remain unsatisfied and unfulfilled by the wonders of earthly life. There are many glorious and good things we see and experience, but they never ultimately satisfy the longing of our hearts. Life is a vapor, all is in vain, and there's got to be something more. He goes on in verses 9 and 10. He says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said? See, this is new. It has already been before us. So again, he's pressing the point. The repetitive, nothing new nature of life speaks to the vanity of life. He's saying, what's the point of trying to find gain, trying to find lasting satisfaction in this life? It's all been tried before. There's nothing new under the sun. It's all been tried and it's all been found wanting. Now, my favorite example of this currently, and I don't know if you guys know this, but it's true. We are currently experiencing the glorious return of the mullet. That's right. This hideous, once rejected and shamed and scorned hairdo is now popular again. The mullet is back, baby. So it's very popular with athletes, especially baseball players. You see here, now you may be thinking, man, that guy played in the 80s, maybe the 90s. No, this guy plays today. Google it, best mullets in baseball, some great stuff. <laughs> John Crook, remember him? First baseman for the Phillies, still the best mullet in the history of the game. They should put him in the Hall of Fame for that reason alone. But it's not just athletes. Athletes do goofy stuff. It's not just athletes. So this next one, this music performer, Kinsey Wheeler. He was one of the finalists from the most recent season of NBC's The Voice. Look at that glorious hairsprayed mullet. Fancy. So this used to be hip and popular in the 80s and the 90s. Think Billy Ray Cyrus, best mullet of all time. No doubt. And then this haircut was a joke. Think Joe Dirt, the movie. It was a joke. And now, again, it's hip and popular. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it can be said, see, this is new? Well, it's already been in the ages before us. The writer's point is, look at the efforts of humans. Look at the efforts of humans to arrive at something that finally satisfies Look at the attempts of people to find something, create something, do something that finally makes us feel whole, finally makes us feel complete, satisfied. All those efforts are in vain. 
that new job, that new family, that new technology, that new salary, that new accomplishment, that new relationship, that new situation, that new experience, that new car, that new home, that new wardrobe, it all eventually goes the way of the mullet and becomes a joke. There is nothing new under the sun. It is all on repeat. Then finally, in verse 11, he kind of says the same thing, but in the opposite direction on the timeline. He says, looking forward, there's nothing new that satisfies. And looking backward, there's nothing old that's going to be remembered. Verse 11, he says, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after us. So progressive-minded people tend to look to the future for the new thing, the new change that's going to make the difference. Conservative people tend to look to the past to return to the glory days, to make things great again like they used to be. But the writer says both are in vain. For the progressive, there's nothing new that's going to satisfy. For the conservative, there's nothing old that's going to be remembered. It is all, my friends, in vain. Vanity, vanity. What can man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Nothing. And the repetitive nature of the world points to that fact. The repetitive nature of the natural world, the unmoving earth, the cycle of the seasons, the circularity of the winds and the water, the cycling of the sun, rising and falling, it all points to the monotonous, circular, repetitive, never-arriving, never-completed nature of life. A generation comes, a generation goes, nothing is remembered, nothing is new, it's all been done before, and it'll not be remembered. We're always going, but never arriving. Weary with our efforts to be fulfilled, to try to be satisfied, but there's no gain of any substance to be had in life under the sun. If this is all there is. If this is all there is. But if this isn't all there is, if we not only live under the sun, but we also live under heaven, then maybe there's more. Then maybe there's a purpose beyond just the fleeting pleasures and accomplishments and experiences in this life. And certainly, this is what is communicated to us in the story of the gospel. Within the secular framework, life is just an unending cycle of nothingness going nowhere. But within the framework of the Bible, we do understand that God is telling a story that is going somewhere, that is progressing. In the beginning, God created the world. He created us. And he gave us the glorious purpose of being his image bearers, reflecting his glory and goodness all over the world. Tragically, we fell into sin and rebellion against him, trying to be God and experience goodness apart from God. But mercifully, God began to unfold a plan of redemption. God began to act purposefully, telling a story of redemption that began in Abraham, wove its way through Moses, then David, and ultimately the story builds toward and reaches its climax in Jesus of Nazareth. 
the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the only truly new thing. History has never seen anything like this, like him, before. And in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we learn about the only thing in history that will never truly be forgotten. This is unforgettable. This is momentous. And in the gospel of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we hear good news that fills our ears and fills our hearts. And in the gospel of Jesus, our eyes behold the glory and grace of our sacrificial Savior that truly satisfies us, makes us joyfully whole. And in the story of the gospel, we come to see that the world and world history is not just one unending, repetitive experience of nothing going nowhere. No, history is going somewhere. It led up to the coming of Christ. Its turning point was the resurrection of Christ. And now, by the Spirit, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another as the story continues until he returns. So despite the apparent vanity of life and despite the sincerely vain nature of life within the secular worldview, the gospel teaches us God has a plan for the world. This is not all there is. We don't just live under the sun. We live under heaven. And God isn't just some faraway deity. No, he is our creator and he has infused his creation with glory and beauty and purpose. And so I love what the writer of Ecclesiastes said towards the end of the book after he gets a little less depressing. In chapter 12, verse one, he says this, remember also your creator. Remember him in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. In other words, the writer is pleading with his secular audience. He's pleading with us even. We're more tempted to secularism than we may think. He's pleading with his audience. Before you spend your life for the fleeting pleasures of the world, before you waste your life living for the vain accomplishments in the world before you waste your life looking for the new thing, the unforgettable thing, before you waste your life like that, remember your creator. Remember that true purpose in life is only found in the author of life, God the creator. Remember that the only true gain to be experienced is when we live life with Jesus at the center. Everything else is vanity of vanities. It's all vanity. Money, sex, power, influence, politics, ministry, family, possessions, haircuts. Vanity of vanities. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you, Lord, once again, perplexed by this peculiar book. 
uh, this, this strange book that is nevertheless your book and no less inspired by your Holy Spirit than any of the other writings. Father, I pray over the next several weeks that we would experience gain as we open the scriptures and hear from the writer of Ecclesiastes. Confront us, Father. Maybe we don't confess secularism, but we're nevertheless tempted to a practical sort of secularism where we live secular lives, not with you as truly as at the center as you should be. So confront us, Father. Challenge us, Father. And encourage us, God. Encourage us with how wonderful and joyful and good and full the biblical worldview is, where we live life under the sun also, under heaven, under the king of heaven, Jesus, who is writing a story, who is the hero of the story, and who we are all getting behind so that we can experience true glory, true goodness, true gain following him. So God, help us to do that. Write this word on our hearts and help us to live for you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.